The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, April 25th, the Communes Are Better edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, host of NPR's Invisibilia, and in the New York studios today, we have June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And I'm excited to be podcasting for the first time with Nicole, Nicole Perkins, a co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Marsha and Christina are out this week, so June and I are subbing. Uh, Before we get started, we've got something super exciting to announce. June, why don't you take it? If you are in New York City on Saturday, June 8th, or if you can get to New York City on Saturday, June 8th, Slate Day is a whole absolutely packed schedule of really cool events, many featuring live tapings of Slate podcasts. But the one that I really want to focus on right now is the thing that's happening at 10 a.m. It is a Waves and Outward joint brunch. It will be boozy. There will be booze. We will have the amazing Ms. Cracker, drag queen of this parish, and uh, other great guests too. So make your plans and to find more information, go to slate.com slash slate day 2019. Our three topics for today. First, the black feminist who spotted the alt-right threat before anyone else did. Second, is marriage obsolete? A package in New York Magazine asks that question. We discuss. And finally, Netflix new entry into the rom-com series, Someone Great. It's kind of a romantic comedy in reverse. And then in our Slate Plus segment, we will discuss June. What are we talking about? We will ask if it's sexist that the TSA scanners often kind of freak out with black hair and require black women to be subjected to hair pat downs. And here's a snippet from that discussion. You know, June, I think you put your finger on it with the word unexpected. Like, I couldn't figure this one out because I was like, well, they can't see through the scanners. And I have diabetes, so I have these things on my arms. Mm -hmm. And I've just like every single time I I, 100 percent of the time I beep and it never occurred to me. It's just like, why can't they work that into the system? Like Mm -hmm. medical device, black hair, like it's the unexpected problem. If you would like to join Slate Plus to hear our Is It Sexist segments and also to support Slate's journalism, you can start a two-week free trial by going to slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right, let's move on to our topic, the black feminist troll busters. Writer Rachel Hampton wrote a phenomenal story in Slate this week uncovering an important bit of feminist history. A group of black feminists who, even before Gamergate, spotted and uncovered a group of trolls who make life miserable on the Internet for women. We have Rachel here with us today to discuss her fantastic story. Hi, Rachel. Hi. So this was such a good story. It was so interesting. Um, can you just why don't we just start by telling us what was hashtag end Father's Day? Like what 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 was that hashtag and what did it look like? Yeah, so it started trending worldwide. Um the Friday before Father's Day in 2014. And to an outside observer, it basically looked like a bunch of radical feminists saying that we should end Father's Day because it was patriarchal or sexist and like men were responsible for most of like family abuse. And there were a lot of tweets that were like, end Father's Day because white women keep taking our good black men or um, end Father's (laughs) Day until men stop like killing us. It was... It was to anyone who was familiar with like feminism or black feminism or like critical gender theory or anything. It was obviously fake. But to people who 
we're becoming more familiar with feminism through this like um, this increasingly popular online movement, it seemed somewhat plausible. So it trended worldwide. A bunch of conservatives jumped on top of it. Ben Shapiro tweeted about it. Um, Tucker Carlson devoted a segment to it. And it looked like it was just people, most of the tweets in the hashtag were people being like, what's wrong with feminists these days? They're crazy. And so it it turns out that it was basically a hoax hashtag started by um, a thread on 4chan doing to do exactly what it ended up doing, which is make people think that feminists were crazy. And they chose- and what year was this? Just give us like locate us so we know where we are because it's yeah. pre-game. That was what was amazing to me is this is this happened a long time ago. Yeah, this was 2014. So it was about it was June 2014 and Gamergate was August of that year. So it was two or three or four months before Gamergate, which has largely been ignored when we try to locate the beginning of this terrible mass of trolling that everyone's dealing with right now. Everyone kind of points to Gamergate as the beginning when people started realizing how lax Twitter's policies were. But black women had kind of been talking about this even before in Father's Day. They had talked about this phenomenon of people just making fake profiles with fake photos. People had noticed that they their photos were being stolen. And so it kind of just shows and these accounts were mass reported to Twitter and there was one that was still up when I started reporting the story for BuzzFeed reporter, former BuzzFeed writer, um, Heaven Nagatu and I emailed Twitter about it and I was like, did you know, like people have pointed Because it was out. her photo. It was her photo and yeah. multiple people had pointed it out and they were like, well, oops. So then they didn't do anything. Is it still there? Well, no, they suspended it after oh. I pointed it out. Good, good. Well, that's good. I remember... Um, this experience and I remember the in Father's Day tag and just thinking this can't be real this doesn't make any sense but like most black women you know on my timeline or that I follow or whatever you could kind of look and say like we don't talk like that like we don't put like the syntax is all wrong for this this is the wrong vernacular like all of this like we noticed this and you know at that time there was no way to report it because there was I don't think there was a way to report um you know, this account is impersonating someone. I don't even think it was like an impersonating just a, a regular person, you know. So there was definitely no way to come in and say, re- to report an account and say, this person is trying, is pretending to be black. And then like, how do you prove that someone is pretending to be black if you are not black, you know, okay. to, or to somebody who is not black? So there was like all this mess. And I, I definitely remember this whole thing. One of the things that I loved uh, reading about was just the kind of the network where, Women, you know, I remember at some point you were like, well, this person didn't know that person, but they knew that they weren't in the same networks. And in fact, that two of the major characters that you have in your story, um, they still have not met in in person, but they know each other very well. And they're just this, the way that the kind of detective work was, well... We they, these people don't have anybody in common who they should have if they were who are they are pretending to be. That network was definitely one of when I kind of asked black women what clued them into these accounts being fake. It was the syntax, a like the wrong African American vernacular English or AAVE, and then the fact that they're like we don't all know each other, we don't all necessarily like each other, but we can tell. Like I know this person who has met this person at a conference, or like my ex has dated this person, like <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Now, like we've been following each other since the days of like Live Journal, Black Planet, all these other social media forums, and we have like a network, and you can tell when someone 
who's trying to insert themselves into the conversation using theoretically um, social justice language like intersectional, et cetera, patriarchy. But they're not they're trying to talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk Mm -hmm. and they're not even really talking the talk that well. Right. So so how off was it? Like, I remember, you know, when you read those like Russian, when the Russians were faking American vernacular, it's like it was just like slightly off. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was just like a little bit like you could tell an American did not write this Confederate slogan or whatever. Um, in this case, like, were, were is it totally obvious to you or do you have to look twice? Um, Nicole, you're online. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I rem- um, like I still see it now. Like there was something recently where someone was like, you know, that's right, sister, we've got to stick together, and it was just very like, <laughs> just a, you know, like the sister was spelled out, mm-hmm. and then it was used in a place you wouldn't normally put sister, and like that kind of thing, you know, very much of you know, like a you go girlfriend, it's like, like ABBA lyrics, yeah, right? yeah. It was just like really strange, it's, and it always just there's nothing necessarily again that you can prove you know like it's just a gut kind of thing sometimes mm-hmm. I mean you can point to the syntax of, of the vernacular because again most people don't understand that there are rules to um, black slang and black English I guess if you want to call it that but there are rules you know and sometimes um, I saw it really bad on Tumblr at that time more mm-hmm. so than Twitter but um, the habitual be right you know you're like i you know you know women be shopping right that's <laughs> incorrect <laughs> so when you would see people using habitual be incorrectly that was a dead giveaway mm-hmm. and that was one of their like very early very sloppy clues that these people were pretending to be something that they weren't yeah and what ultimately was the purpose of the impersonation i mean yeah, so this came right after the hashtag started by Mickey Kendall called Solidarity is for White Women, and it basically exposed a lot of um, tension within the online feminist movement along the lines of race and class, where there was this kind of constant ignoring of race in terms of like a gender analysis and very much like a, we'll deal with that later. We're talking about women now. And it's like, that's not how this works. <laughs> and so this had exposed a lot of... Um, kind of people's blindness around these things. And so these trolls had been monitoring the online feminist movement, which most people don't realize. They think they're kind of just like 12-year-olds on the internet just Mm -hmm. being like, we're going to start a fake hashtag. And it's like, no, they're deeply surveilling these communities. And so they had noticed these lines and they were trying to exploit these divisions basically by having most of their fake accounts be black women and so they were trying to paint black women as like radical and hysterical and basically negate any good point that had made before this so they could point to black feminists and be like I know they said something about how like we're not necessarily great on race but like they tried to end Father's Day what's wrong with them and so that was basically (laughs) That was the point of using like this hashtag was and then to people who weren't really noticing race, it was to just have conservatives think feminists were stupid, which mm. they're going to do anyway. Right. Um, I think I guess the problem with I mean, the, the, the takeaway from this story for me is like why everybody believed it. And was it everybody or was it just the was it like Tucker Carlson people who believed it or did everybody just kind of think this was a real thing? Um, there were definitely people who were like, there's no way this can be real. Like, there were a lot of people who were saying that, but a lot of conservatives believed it. Um, strangely, which 
I didn't really mention on the story, a lot of black men believed it, which I think is like, a, yeah, Nicole said very much. I was just like, I feel like Nicole's going to get me on this. But like, I couldn't bring that up because it was kind of a diversion in the piece. But like a lot of black men believed it. And I think it really gets to the point of who wants to believe that black feminists are not making valid points because it's inconvenient for them to acknowledge it. And so, yeah. I think some journalists kind of believed it, but a lot of people delete their tweets. So reporting yeah. stuff in twenty like in twenty fourteen about Twitter is very hard. Mm-hmm. You have to like go back through hashtags and you can see people replying to stuff that doesn't exist anymore. And so yeah. I'm kind of going based off screenshots. So there were some stories at the time that were like, This is a hoax, this is fake, don't believe this. But there were obviously like people believing it. Mm. I think for me what really stood out um in your piece is this kind of begrudging admit, you know, confession that journalists have now that, okay, maybe it's did maybe this kind of um, noticing the trends or whatever happened before Gamergate. And maybe I was wrong to dismiss the trolls of Gamergate, but people still seem very reluctant to admit that black women were once again leading this particular kind of awareness movement. And it seems um, that they're just really having a hard time admitting that, yes, they should have paid more attention to black women, which is, you know, has become kind of a joke a little bit now on social media where people are just kind of like, forget it, let's black, you know, let's let black women do it. Or, you know, if you want to get something done, black let black women do it. And I think um, that just puts still too much pressure on black women to always be the ones leading the way and to always be the ones kind of like making sure that we're all safe. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, I want if to go back to the journalists being reluctant. Can you talk a bit more about that? And if people are still just kind of like, I don't want to admit that I was wrong. Yeah, so I couldn't really, a lot of the people, I necessarily didn't do a retrospective where I got to confront people about their comments they had made in the past. So I think that in the lead up to 2016 and with the alt-right and a lot of people didn't really acknowledge how bad it had gotten until Charlottesville because a lot of people just wanted to say it's just online like Mm. yeah you're getting harassed yeah you're getting death threats yeah they're like anti-semitic but it's online you can just log off just turn your phone off (laughs) don't don't look they're just Mm -hmm. like get off twitter it's fine and so i think that until charlottesville really people didn't want to acknowledge that this was like a real issue that was going to come out and i think that even in acknowledging it they were like we should we missed the entire story of gamergate and so it's not even like not wanting to acknowledge black women is like they don't even know that it's there. They're mm-hmm. like not even looking beyond Gamergate or whatever. They want like an easy narrative. And if they have acknowledged it, they're not doing it publicly. Mm. Well, one thing, too, that feels important is that this is not just something that, you know, happened a long time in the past. And, oh, yeah, it was a little bit undercovered. But like the women who were especially, you know, the women that you profile really suffered because of their role in this and exposing people and exposing this hoax or fraud or whatever is the appropriate term for it. Um, can you just kind of talk about the the their suffering? Sounds like it's not maybe the right way of putting it, but like what they went through uh, and, and what consequences they faced for, for doing what they did. Yeah, 100%. There's like a real human impact with kind of this online harassment that people don't really want to acknowledge. But the women in the story, Shafika Hudson and Anasa Crockett, and other women I interviewed, like Mickey Kendall and Sidette Harry, very much talked about how it impacted their real life. I mean, they, um, Crockett and Hudson both got death and rape threats. 
most of the women that I've talked to have gotten death and rape threats at some point in their lives. Um, Hudson got a call from her old job saying, because trolls on 4chan had looked up her name, found where she had previously worked. She hadn't worked there in years and called her job. And thankfully a friend picked up the phone and was just like, she, this is what is happening. This mm-hmm. is wild. Like, who are these people trying to contact us? And so it's very much like this constant onslaught along with the fact that people just aren't believing that it's a problem and to see it start becoming a problem in 2016 when most of the targets are white male journalists and they're finally starting to see how bad it can get Mm -hmm. they're just like i have had to just be like this is how it's been historically and this is i'm not necessarily the only person experiencing this like this community is behind me and like now you guys want to pay attention and it's disheartening for a lot of them and frustrating. And they're like, I wish I could feel vindicated, but it's, we're in a terrible situation right now. It's not, I don't want to say I told you so. Like we are in danger and I have been in danger for years Mm -hmm. and now we're starting to acknowledge it. Um, How did you, how did you, you, you you know, you're, you're doing this story a few years later. How did you get into it? Like, how did it, how did it occur to you? Yeah. I mean, so the thing is, I follow a lot of these women and I have for a while since I've been on Twitter, which is, I think, been four or five years at this point. And I think that's the thing about the story is that it's not really that hard to find. Like, these women have been talking mm-hmm. about this hashtag forever. Like, they will bring, especially around 2016, when all this started to go up in flames and around Charlottesville. Like, they've constantly talked about your slippage showing. They've constantly talked about, like, the threat that these trolls have presented. Like, it's not something that you could really miss if you followed them. And so I think that it just highlights how much, how many journalists are not following black women who are not, like, journalists or have like reached the pinnacle of their career or whatever and the thing is a lot of these women have been in media like mickey kendall writes for the guardian and all these other places so that harry worked at the new york times at some point like there are a lot of these people who have had access to these institutions and people still just are not really listening to them in any concrete way one of the things that I wanted to highlight and that touched me as a Southern woman is the fact that both the, the two of the women in your story mm-hmm. are from the South and that they use part of their Southern upbringing to be the um, the hashtag, to be what's pointing out this these um, discrepancies in the way that, you know, accounts are moving through Twitter or whatever. And I guess, um, is there any way, I, I don't know, do you have any other thoughts about how, it seems like American culture is black culture is black Southern culture mm-hmm. so much. Um, so I wonder if you could kind of talk about the significance of these women being Southern and their Southern upbringing kind of being what helped them expose all of this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even the hashtag is very much like black Southern slang, like your slip is showing mm-hmm. is very much like the um, Hudson who created the phrase was like, it's church, like it's just something instantly recognizable to people who are in the in-group, but people outside it would be like, what does this really mean? (laughs) Right. And so I think that, I mean, one of the things that she mentioned is that um, it's funny. Like, it's funny, but it's it's not at the same time because of what's happening. And I think that's very much like Black Southern culture at its roots sometimes, Mm -hmm. where they make this thing that is great and funny and life-giving out of shit, basically. <laughs> yeah. And so <laughs> I feel like this hashtag kind of really goes into that. And I know, like, Crockett did, um, 
like part of a PhD program at Vanderbilt. Like she's into like archival research, like about the South and everything. So like a lot of this is just their expertise and their life experience coming into play with them trying to unmask this thing mm-hmm. happening online. Um, well, thank you for writing the story. It was a great story. It was really interesting. You should check it out on Slate. It's called The Black Feminist Who Saw the Alt-Right Threat Coming, and it's by Rachel Hampton. And Rachel, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, y'all. <laughs> New York Magazine had a recent package of stories in the magazine and online asking the question in the intro essay, is marriage obsolete? Which is a question we've wanted to talk about for a long time. Now, how the magazine approached the topic was very interesting. It basically had profiles, little mini profiles and interviews with people in every form of marriage arrangement possible. So before we address the big question itself, I'm just going to ask you guys, what were your favorites? So, Nicole, which which reading reading through this really just like wide array of marriage arrangements, which one stuck out for you? Um, the one that featured the married couple, Robert Criscow mm-hmm. and Carola Dibble, um, that had been married for 46 years. And it's titled When Infidelity, Infertility and Cancer Only Make Your Marriage Stronger. And I did not know what to expect going into this particular piece because it just seems like, oh, wow, that's so much to happen. <laughs> and then um, I took a step back and I was like, well, I guess that's what marriage is, right? So many things happening that you kind of have to deal with and um, learn to roll with. And so, but the that article um, is an interview with between the two, uh, husband and wife, and they were so forthcoming and honest and funny with each other. And it was also just kind of like, getting an American history lesson with with the way that they were talking about these different moments in their lives, the things that they had gone through. So it was just a really fascinating read for me. Mm. What did you think, June? I mean, I will say the whole premise of this was, you know, you can't really know anyone's marriage, but here we go. We're going to try. Right. And it definitely had that vibe to it. Like it definitely like they got somewhere with people, you know, like they were demanding a kind of honesty and intimacy, Mm -hmm. which was pretty real. Like these were short little profiles, but 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 they felt like like kind of they were deep inside people's marriages. So which one which one did you notice? I really liked Heather Haverlevsky's piece, which was more of a, um, you know, a narrated story of her own experience of her own marriage. Um, and, you know, her husband was almost a minor character in it. Like he was, it was all, it was a very, um, you know, wonderfully uh, self-focused piece of like, you know, these are all the things that make me crazy. Am I just settling? Is it just that I want to, you know, that marriage is, uh, you know, economical, that it's like easier, you know, two can live as as cheaply as one or whatever that phrase is or is it just that I want someone who would you know find me if I fell over in the bathtub Um, and then kind of realizing no this guy who is flawed and who sometimes make me crazy also can make me laugh and also is the person who I just really enjoy being with for a good chunk of the time and that that marriage doesn't have to be perfection and it doesn't have to be awful that it's usually somewhere in between and and we have all kinds of experiences and it's just a matter of like just finding someone who both irritates you and amuses you and just kind of finding peace with that somehow yeah i mean i i have to say like the the thing that came off the page for me overwhelmingly and the reason i found the whole thing profound was that it began with this question as marriage is marriage obsolete? Mm-hmm. And then 
essentially, it, it's like a million marriages pushed to the breaking point, mm. you know, pushed to the breaking point in the sense that they weren't particularly traditional of traditional means after 1950, like in the 1950s to modern history mm-hmm. way, um, they they had suffered a ton of stuff like mm-hmm. like you know, really just kind of painful kinds of infidelity, um, open marriages that still where the guy, that's the one that stuck with me as I was in an open marriage. And then the guy broke the vows of the open marriage. Like he was a player inside the open marriage and kept like he and his wife had this weird kind of cat and mouse lying game around the open marriage, mm-hmm. um, which he was pushing. And that was really, really interesting to me because it was like, because what, what you got from the end of that is that it was about the game. Like it was about having a partner to play the game of lying about an open marriage with that was the nature of the relationship between him and his wife there was another one of a couple who didn't have sex like it was a just kind of a snippet from their sex therapy which was kind of brilliant and it would talked about how hard it was they hadn't had sex for a while and how awkward it was mm-hmm. it's interesting to talk about have a married couple talk about awkwardness mm-hmm. like awkwardness around sex just because it'd been a long time and so they just it's not that they didn't want to have it was like you're really in these kind of really minute spaces of intimacy because it wasn't like you know they weren't attracted to each other they used to have good sex it's just they kind of lost it somewhere mm-hmm. um and we're having a hard time getting it back and not to mention all the kind of like you know sort of social upheavals that have entered into marriage like the thruple mm-hmm. or the uh, or the trans marriage or, you know, the things that we do hear and write about. And and yet pe- people were into marriage. Like, that's what right. was amazing to me. Right. Like, why doesn't the form break? Like, it didn't seriously take on the question, is marriage obsolete, which is what it set out to take on. The entire package was a celebration of the strength of marriage because they were all pushed so hard right. and they didn't break. And I didn't understand that. Like, it left me wondering, like, why? Like, why would you cling to me? Like, all these other countries do not. Like, people in, in, in Denmark and kind of other industrialized countries have stopped getting married because it seems like why to people? You know, like, you can live in these arrangements. They can be looser. You can raise children together. So why is it in America that given that we allow all these changes in and there are all these pains and things, people are still value marriage. I didn't understand that. Well, at the I end feel of that. like like beyond the emotional stuff of marriage and that kind of commitment, like it makes financial sense, right? <laughs> you know, to like for insurance purposes and you know, you hear so many sad stories about people who may have been living together for a very long time and they didn't get officially married or whatever. And they try to go and to see someone in the hospital. They're, they try to go see their partner in the hospital and they're not allowed since they're not technically married and things like that. So I think that's part of it. And when you have these places um like in these European countries, well, you, you don't have to get married to get right. better insurance. You right. don't have to, get, you don't know. need insurance because right. you have health care. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I think, you know, our country is built on the advantages of marriage economically and socially, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I, that, I think that's right, that I think there is something different about America, which is that so much of, of our just basic living the ways that we can get through life, the benefits, you know, just having health coverage, having just things that you need to to remove stress from your life, you get from marriage, but not necessarily from being an established couple. 
And so that that makes a difference in America. But there was an interesting story. There was one of the gay relationships that they profiled was a man who married one of the two other people that he was involved with in the relationship um, so that he could stay in the country. He was from another country and, and he, you know, it, it was it was to give him, uh, you know, to make him legal, but also to, you know, give him a better life to to also maintain the relationship. And they did talk about how, you know, it was, yes, it was a thing that they needed to do. Uh, and they were, to a certain extent, exploiting the system. But it did was still very meaningful. Um, that system had been put in place, you know, that was social policy that had been put in place that wasn't meant for them. And so they were taking legal advantage, but also it was a real love affair. It was a real relationship among people and that did deserve to prosper and thrive. And that they talked about what being how being married actually made a difference and that how getting eventually divorced also, you know, affected the relationship. Um, so there was a there were some discussions of, um, you know, kind of the weird role that social policy affects relationships because of the benefits that are accrued. Yeah, because even in that particular article, they talked about how you know it costs thirty dollars to get married, but six thousand to get divorced right. or something like that, like some yeah. huge astronomical difference between the two. So again, you have all these things put in place to prevent people from mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Coupling, mm-hmm. um, because it's just I don't I don't know why, but I will say that the whole package just kind of had me reassess my own thoughts about mm-hmm. marriage and what I expect from it and what that means for me. Also, as a feminist, <laughs> do I still want the traditional marriage or do I want something else? Um, so I guess if that was the point of the package, mm-hmm. th- it worked on me. But I will also say that that is something that I think about a lot mm. as a single woman over 40. But what do you mean reassess? Like in which direction it made you feel like you had to be more like wary and thoughtful or like what did it what did it what did it make you think? It made me think more about why I want to get married and what the purpose of my marriage would be like what is it mm-hmm. just about the significance of it to the world some I love someone so much that I want to be with him forever or or whatever forever is um (laughs) or you know that I'm am I signifying that someone loves me enough to want to get to that point um or do I just really want to make it a practical thing of I am a freelance writer I need a second income (laughs) what does that look like you know how could I make that happen um or you've been to so many weddings Come on, come yeah, to mind. Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I've just been trying to figure out what I want from marriage because it seems like um, there's one article. I actually didn't get to read it, but the head, the headline indicated that, you know, we've been married 70 years and we're still working on it or something like that. It was something like whatever. I'm like, how are you like, you know, you've been married for decades, you know, over 50 years and it's still hard. Like that bothers me. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. Like, you know, and maybe because I've never been married, I don't understand why you still have to like possibly nag each other to do certain things. Um, but yeah, so that it all just kind of made me f- try to figure out what do I want from marriage and is it possible to get what I want from marriage from one person. Did it make you reassess your marriage, uh, Hannah? Well, you know, like you say work on it like it's a bad thing. And it seems to me like you always have to kind of work on 
relationships. You know, like, I don't get older and feel like the right thing is, like, everything gets settled. I feel like the work on it part of relationships, and this includes with my close friends, is just a given, Right. Like, I feel like when I was younger, I had the sense that, like, you know, I would be work, work, but I would get to a place where there would be no more work. Like, it would just mm. be fine, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then but th- but then I realized, like, that place is kind of dead, you know, <laughs> that place of like everything's fine. There's always things to, like there are always places to go and things to get deeper and, and for things to change. And like, for me, it's better just to always have that possibility open i think um so so that i'm we've been married 70 years and working on it i took as a hopeful story i was like oh that's good you know that's good that means like even after 70 years there's like there's like there's life and friction in that relationship oh okay i can see it that way that there's still something you're learning maybe okay that makes a little sense to me but i you know i guess the idea of like you know i've got to tell a grown man, you know, fix your own food tonight. I'm tired or something like that. That would bother me, I think. And, you know, again, I've never been married. Um, I've lived with boyfriends, you know, things like that. But that, again, is not the same. Right. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do understand that. But just I just can't fathom, like, getting to this point where I'm in my 90s with someone and I still have to remind him to be an adult, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But maybe that's just me underestimating or something. I don't know. It's interesting that you said I know that's different because this package was about marriage rather than relationships. Mm -hmm. And I am always curious as somebody who's been in a relationship for a long time but isn't married and doesn't want to be, um, like what difference does it make to be married? What difference does it make to take vows? Is Are the vows the thing? Are, are there other responsibilities? Are the fact that you can get married for $30, but it takes 6000 even for the most amicable divorce? Like, it, does being married as opposed to being in a relationship or living with someone or all those other types of relationships that we could define, does it make a difference? And Hannah, as the only married person here, does it make a difference? Yeah, I mean, because of what Nicole said, like, I'm thinking about this idea that it's actually a structural problem. It's like America that validate. It's like a closed loop. It's because mm-hmm. America only accrues certain benefits and and kind of like because the entire structure from kind of hotels onto health insurance is designed to support marriage. Because I think in the country, people are less interested in marriage. Like if you pull, there have been polls, like younger people for sure do more agree with the statement marriage is obsolete. Fewer people who are not college educated are married. Like there is less, you know, like appetite for marriage out in the country, but but America is like holding firm mm-hmm. structurally mm-hmm. on the thing. So, so yes, like there are certain benefits, but I don't know, you know, is my relationship any different from your relationship? I doubt it. You know, right. like it, like in the emotional valence of it, or in how our friends see it, or our close intimates. Like, no, like yeah. what's the difference? But but in how but in how the structure sees it, like yes, there's certain there are differences. One of the things that was really striking in the package was when children were part of the picture, because children and and like having children be part of the family, like and how that affects your marriage did seem to be almost always a stress. Like there were other things that I didn't really quite see mentioned so much of like, you know, elder care or having to care for other people in your family or, you know, just having other issues that that you could really 
both use the help with of a partner, but also um, just the cause to really put a put pressure and stress on a relationship. And it was really interesting how kids were both the cause of behaving better because you wanted to model good behavior for kids and you could see that when you were arguing, that was really bad for your kids and, and just kind of trying to be a better person because of that. But also just, you know, the expense and the, the strains and the responsibilities felt like since another reason for getting married along with benefits and all of those things is, you know, to, for again, for convenience, I guess, um, with kids is just how how much of a stress they put on relationships. And, and, and again, you don't have to be married to have kids. That, that stress could be separate, but it is such a thing that keeps or appears to keep a lot of marriages together. I was very kind of interested in how kids played into these narratives of marriage. I did like that one story where the couple was like, you know, we faked it for the kids mm-hmm. until it became real. Mm-hmm. That was kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. It's like we created a kind of like fake sort of goodness between us mm-hmm. for the sake of the children. But then that actually became our actual relationship. Um, yeah. I loved how there was a line in that piece, something like, you know, they were, they were performing essentially their their happy relationship. And then she sort of, lent in to him and pretended to kiss him and, and whispered in his ear, Take what? <laughs> I did love that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm with you. That yeah. one seems obvious to me. It does not seem to me that the American family is the best place to raise a child. Like, I know that's a crazy thing to say, but it's just not. Like, communes are better. Mm-hmm. More people are better. Different. Like, it's not natural for, like, two working people and certainly not single moms, of which there are a ton, to be, like, home alone mm-hmm. with the children. Like, mm-hmm. I don't I never understood why that's the ideal. Like, the more people, the better. Like, the shared responsibility it's all good you know it's yeah, just right. like more love and right. somehow that's not a transition we can make anyway listeners we encourage you to read the new york magazine issue see if anything in it resonates with things in your own marriage or things that you know about in your own life and please write us about them at the waves at slate.com we would love to hear from you or you can tweet at us at june thomas at hannah rosen or at tennessee whiskey woman that's at TN Whiskey Woman. That's where you can find Nicole. All right, let's move on to our next topic. Someone Great, a new Netflix rom-com starring Gina Rodriguez from Jane the Virgin as one of a trio of girlfriends who kicks off the plot when she gets broken up with by her boyfriend, who's played by Lakeith Stanfield from Get Out. The movie's trick is to play the rom-com in reverse. It rewinds the relationship, helps push her to a place where she cannot be with the guy, but be alone and heading to a new job. So this was kind of an interesting experiment. Uh, before we get into the boy-girl dynamics, I, I, you know what? But well, you know what's like like what what always? I, I want your your guys's opinion on whether these three people would be friends in real life. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> you know the bold type. They're just like a thing that's done now. And like, would these people have anything? Like, they might have something to do with each other. I just couldn't settle on that question before I can get into it. I could see Gina Rodriguez's character being friends with both of them. I just can't see Erin and Blair being roommates. Like, sure, they all knew each other at college. They would know each other. They would go out. But I that that sort of core threesome uh, didn't quite convince me. But nice fantasy. 
Yeah, same. I just don't think that they would have such a tight-knit group together. And so you have Jenny, who is played by Gina Rodriguez. You have Aaron, um, who is played by DeWanda Wise from She's Gotta Have It mm-hmm. on Netflix. And you have Blair, who is played by Brittany Snow, who I'm not very familiar with, but I've seen her face around. I know she was on a, in an arc on... Um, Crazy ex-girlfriend, but I don't really know like who, what else she's done. But I feel like I'm supposed Pitch to. Perfect. Oh yeah, I didn't. she's from Pitch Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> but you know she's such a type to me. Like I, she looks like about five different actresses. I'm like I don't quite know which one she like. That's a terrible thing to say, but like <laughs> she, she's like she's definitely a type of like very uptight blonde who like has very strict rules of how life is going to be and like has to go and do her presentation. Yeah. And there are a lot of women who get cast in that role over and over and over again. So I really wasn't sure which one it was, yeah. but she played it quite well. Yeah, like she was fine. Like everyone. Was did a really good right. job. It was solid. I don't think that it's like something I'll go back to yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to rewatch, yeah. unfortunately. Um, but I think it's, you know, a good girls' night movie. Right. Yeah. The other thing that was, since we're starting by focusing on the things that were not totally um, believable, was Dewanda Wise's character is a lesbian and she seems to hang out all of, she seems to spend all of her time with straight girls, which. Again, not right. really things that people do. Right, which um, her girlfriend and in the film right. pointed out. Right, she was right. just like, you you don't have much queer theory in your real life right. going right. on. Right. So. Yeah, yeah. Although she was pretty awesome, I gotta I say. Her, loved, I mean, Dewanda Wise was yeah, like, yeah. she was like the intelligence in that movie. Yeah. you know, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, she was really working. She's a fantastic actress. Yeah, she just has a kind of badassery mm-hmm. in in her like in in who she plays that just like ground can ground a movie because this movie like you said Nicole it's like it's just kind of like frothy it's trying something but mm-hmm. it's not trying it fully kind of like it's not fully committing it's basically landing at being a kind of forgettable rom-com but it is trying something interesting and 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 I felt like she could have pushed it a little she if they had just followed her lead they could have pushed it a little more so w- did you guys buy so the the, th- the the one thing that was interesting to me about this is you know, playing with the form, which which it's like it's hard to do, I think, these days, just like a regular rom-com form where like the girl gets the guy at the end. Like something seems annoying probably about that right now at this moment. And so 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 the way this works is that it starts with a breakup, basically a breakup of a lovely relationship. Like you see flashbacks and it's like a seems like a really good relationship that started in college. And it's about moving away from your college relationship. Um, what what did you guys were you guys moved by that? What did you think of that arc? It's like 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 reversing the rom-com that way. See, for me, this wasn't a rom-com. I mean, as you say, it's a reversal of a rom-com. The focus is so much on the friendship and how and getting over the rom. And it's not really much of a com. Like, that's not a criticism. I don't, I don't know that it's really supposed to be. It's more like a romp or a, you know, uh, whatever you call that kind of movie where it's just like a series of adventures, a series of, of fun little vignettes almost, um, which is can be fun, but it also means that you don't really get to settle into any one story because you're like, oh, we're on to the next little, you know, 15 minute break, you know, from the action. But I, I did like that it was very clear eyed about, yeah, this relationship is over. That makes her really sad. That's sad because it wasn't a horrible relationship. It was great at times. It was annoying at times. It maybe ran its course that they are in different places, both literally soon and in their careers. Um, 
and that I thought that the portrayal of the relationship in the past was really was interesting and it felt like a real relationship in a, in a movie that didn't always feel totally credible. That relationship felt quite real. Yeah, and this is the second Netflix film that Lakeith Stanfield has starred in as the really good boyfriend who broke up with um, the incredible woman for n- not any good reason, but not any bad reason either. They just kind of grew apart and then the woman is dealing with it. And that other movie was the incredible Jessica James starring... Um, starring Jessica Williams. And again, it's another Netflix movie. It should be pretty easy to find if it's still on there. Um, and that came out in 2017. But it's a, it was the same story. Jessica James is this playwright, I believe, and she's um, dealing with a breakup. And she thinks she still wants to get back with Lakeith's character. And like she goes through all this stuff and then she ends up with Chris O'Dowd. But um, here... (laughs) That's quite um, a journey. Yeah. Um, But here, again, Lakeith is like this great millennial boyfriend where he's very sensitive and he dresses in this kind of approachable, safe way. (laughs) And, you know, he's um, this wiry guy instead of beefcake, right? Right, You know? and Got a lot of tattoos, but it's not like, it's not, oh, God, he looks dangerous. Yeah. NYU guy. Right. Nice and he's guy. still very sweet and cuddling and all this kind of stuff, but people grow apart. And I think I like this direction that, you know, male stars in rom coms are taking when they're in a, a hetero rom com, I mm-hmm. guess, because, you know, men can be soft and sweet and actually still be worthy of someone falling in love with. Because sometimes we get, you know, the bad boy thing still, whatever. But yeah, yeah. for the, for someone great, it was fine. I I could see that um, Jenny's grief was real. And that's, you know, when you're going through that first day, you have those pockets of numbness. And then when you're just crying over something, the song comes on and you right. start crying or whatever. It's interesting to me because I don't necessarily, in, whenever I've had these kind of terrible breakups, I don't necessarily want to be surrounded by my girlfriends. Like, mm-hmm. give me a day <laughs> to just, like, sit in the grief and right. the misery and then Wallow. I can come out. Yeah. So I I thought that was interesting to see this kind of, like, one crazy night of friendship around uh, Broken Heart, which was, you know, again, it was very sweet. Yeah. Overall, though, I have to say that, I mean, I, I had many moments of, like, really? <laughs> but I did enjoy this movie because, uh, uh, although... Like you, Nicole, I don't think I'll be watching it again, but I I rarely do watch things twice, even things that I'm really, really into. But I liked that it felt different, not in the in the narrative or where the art was going, but just it felt, you know, that they could say fuck, that they mm. could do drugs. I mean, too many drugs. It reminded me uh, for my for my like old lady uh, sensibilities. Like it reminded me of the one of the early episodes of Broad City where Abby and Ilana like also were trying to get tickets for some big concert. And we're also trying to get drugs for the big concert. And I remember at the time being like, oh, you really shouldn't do so many drugs, girls. You know, like that's not really very good for you. Your careers won't flourish if that's, you know, Again, but so like I, it does make me feel a bit like, oh, girls, I don't know if I want you to do that. But I like that it didn't have to pretend, like have to assume a kind of a wholesomeness, and that's something that drives me crazy in movies that are aimed at women, but that are cinema movies, whatever we call those these days, of like having to have the terrible slapstick moment where she craps herself on the street or oh, yeah. you know falls over and her 
hair gets messed up, whatever. Like, I hate that because it feels like that's service for someone else that isn't like who's really, truly the target of the movie. And I was glad that we were spared that. So it did feel refreshingly just more like an, a movie for adult women instead of this kind of infantilization that all, often happens with movies targeted at women um, that are supposed to be mainstream and are going for box office. Yeah, I think when the, when men have a heavy involvement in women's films like this, uh, these comedic films like this, mm-hmm. that's when you get that kind of scatological you know, juvenile humor where right. you have to see someone get massive diarrhea in the middle of the Quite. street or you have to see someone throw up air all over the place. So yeah. There was like this one moment. There was oh, a bit of yeah, vomiting, but yeah. It yeah. was very quick. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I think because um, this was written by a woman and I directed, think... She directed it to... Yeah, yeah. so the, we didn't need all of that. Right. And um, I mean, we have those moments, of course, when you have some drunken girl nights right. and stuff. But... Um, this film didn't need that. But the thing that bothered me, I think, the most, Gina Rodriguez has gotten a little bit of flack in social media and people are what in what people are perceiving as some anti-black sentiments that she's expressed mm. or at least kind of fumbled with. Because in um, and you can Google this, <laughs> but there have been examples in interviews where she was with I think she was with Zendaya and the interviewer was talking to Zendaya about being a role model for black women. And Gina pops in and she's just like, for all women. And he's like, yeah, but also specifically black women. And so it felt, um, some people think that Gina is trying to walk over black women's moments and, you know, mm-hmm. trying to take over those moments or whatever. So in Someone Great, there were these moments where Gina would have what we like to call a black scent, right? Where she was mm-hmm. faking this um, kind of, girl, what are you doing? You know, this kind of little pop to the things that she would say. Um, Like at the end, when Blair confesses something that happens in the movie that they, you know, everyone was trying to keep from Jenny. Jenny doesn't, you know, she doesn't have the kind of reaction that everybody thinks she's going to have. She's just like, girl, girl, girl. (laughs) You know, I'm like, come on. (laughs) No, this is not, this is not real for me. And between that and the context of Gina Mm -hmm. Rodriguez, you know, in her personal life or, you know, in her professional life and PR moments, it's kind of like, "Mm, is she trying to, like, what is she doing with this accent? What Uh is she doing with this moment of trying to appear hip and friendly and whatever? It just felt... fake quite honestly and so those little moments um, rubbed me the wrong way and I had to take a step back and try to figure out is this good for the character or am Mm -hmm. I just responding to Gina you know and so those are those are some moments that I kind of struggled with yeah yeah I'm with you guys it's very mainstream but I took the same hope from it that it's like it's very mainstream without being having all the rom-com cliches and not being um wholesome Mm-hmm. Like that's like the, even in such a mainstream for the main market kind of rom-com, it still wasn't wholesome, you yeah. know, yeah. and that seems that seems good. Like it's still there were a lot there were there were things in it that seemed real, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. like they could actually and happen. I, yeah. And I yeah. also like that for the friends, you know, one's maturity means to break up with someone and figure out her life on her own. Mm-hmm. Another's maturity is to actually get with someone and mm-hmm. to commit to a relationship. And the third person is still just kind of like 
I'm just going to go after what I want. I don't have to, you know. And there was a sort of sex scene that was like probably ill-advised, but it was completely consensual that it was, it felt it was something that she needed and wanted to do at that time. And it wasn't, there was nothing negative about it. It Mm -hmm. seemed like it was fun. And and that also like as basic as that is, like this is what we're celebrating now, but still it did feel like a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. There was this one moment with Blair uh, she was about to have sex with someone and she was kind of waffling because she knew she should not have been <laughs> right. with that person. Right. But, you know, and he stopped. And he's like, if you really want me to stop, I will stop. You right. know, like he gave her the time for yep. her to think and say yes or no. And they were able to move on with her decision. I'm trying not to spoil it yes, <laughs> too cool. much. But I thought that was really well done, that it wasn't heavy handed mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. it felt very natural, particularly yep. in that moment and with those two characters. Right. So I thought that was handled very well. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you have seen someone great or have any thoughts about them, please share them with us. You can tweet at us or write us at thewavesatslate.com. All right. Recommendations. June, what do you have this week? So my recommendation this week actually came uh, to me, to all of us, actually, from an email from a listener. Um, It was a piece that was in Sunday's New York Times, but I actually hadn't seen it until Genevieve Nessam uh, sent us an email. And it's a piece that I recommend uh, looking at online because there is really cool video and photography about it. And it's a piece called Finland's Hobby Horse Girls, Once a Secret Society, Now Prance in Public. Um, and it's by Ellen Barry with photographs by Dmitry Kostyakov. And it is about this phenomenon in Finland, which has apparently been happening for decades, where girls who like are what I I guess in my youth I would have thought of as all the girls who like horses. But not everybody can have a horse. In fact, very, very, very few people can have a horse, no matter how much you're into them. But in Finland, uh, girls, didn't they didn't seem to be any mention of any boys whatsoever doing this. Um, they do what you do with horses, with hobby horses. So they are holding a fake horse's head and they are doing like the 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 dressage the the jumping that that like with their own legs and in the video you know when when i'm saying oh my god i'm watching this video right now june and when when i'm saying this you're probably thinking what are you out of your mind but there's something about this it's it's start most of the girls start this when they're 10 or in their tween years and you know there's something there's like a massive dignity about girls at that age where like you can almost see that they're like having to fight off all kinds of influences and they're really there's certain things that they really want to do it's not all the same for every girl of course not every girl wants to be a horsey girl or a hobby horse girl but the way that they are it's now kind of a sport uh it's not playing they're very keen to say and it's something that girls do together they go off to the woods together and they as if they were riding horses it's bizarre and strange but there's something really kind of beautiful about it and and i'm just envious are, of it oh my god this is so amazing i'm looking at it it's weird you remember there was that new york times photo essay about those women who 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 sort of like were really into fake doll like baby dolls you know and they went around with baby dolls it was super duper creepy this is like the opposite of that it's yeah. like this fakeness but the girls faces i have a 10 year old son so there's a just kind of earnestness yeah. about 10 year olds which is the most beautiful yeah and like the fake the, the judge is doing that like like perky upright 
judging thing yeah, yeah. that judges and in, in horse competitions do yeah. anyway it's amazing yeah it's really amazing so please do That's check so it out and check it out online because you've got to see the videos and the photos uh, I am going to recommend the book Gingerbread by Helen Oyeyemi. Uh, this is, uh, she's written a couple of books and um, I wish Noreen were here because Noreen, uh, out of pure jealousy of Noreen's <laughs> book club, I started a book club. And so, um, yeah, I just 100% wow. jealous. So that's what I did. And uh, this is the book we're reading. And it's not usually like I'm not like a magical realism food style person mm-hmm. um but this has kind of a realism underneath it which uh which i really like cool nicole what do you got i would like to recommend the show um good girls it's mm-hmm. it comes on nbc it stars retta christina Hendricks, and may whitman as a group of women friends christina Hendricks and may whitman play sisters on the show and they start drug dealing um, they live in Detroit, and yeah, it's just a really interesting show. And at first, I kind of poo-pooed it because I was like, oh, this is just a pink Breaking Bad, right? Um, but it's so much more than that. It's really, really good. Um, Christina Hendricks' character, Beth, was with this in this marriage that with the, an idiot. <laughs> um um, like he is this car salesman, like to the T, right? Um, her husband, who is played by Matthew Lillard, and um, dealing with that and wanting to leave, but also being stuck because of the children. Um, so they they start off running these scams where they buy all these things from different stores and um, take them back to get the money. Are they? It's just a lot of stuff that they do. And they end up coming in contact with this man named Rio, named Manny, um, played by Manny Montana. There is so much good sexual tension between Rio and Beth's character. It's phenomenal. <laughs> I love it so much. But my favorite person is Retta, who plays a woman named Ruby Hill, who goes through, you know, these kind of... Um, low-paying jobs as a waitress and things like that. And she's married as well to a cop, and they have two children. Um, Their daughter is sick. And so, again, just looking at the way these women's lives as they try to be providers for their their households in various ways Mm. leads them down a path to criminal behavior and what that means. And it is this constant, like— examination of American culture and and uh, American poverty and what uh, women have to do in the household. And it's just it's just a really, really good show. It's on NBC, but it's also available on streaming on Hulu. If you have Hulu, please check it out. It's really, really good. It's on a second season now. And it's just it's fantastic. Wow. I've been Sounds great. To, you need to check it out and have not <laughs> Oh, my God, a TV show that June hasn't checked out. That is amazing. You get a gold prize. That's amazing, Nicole. That's the first time that's ever happened to me in many years of podcasting with June. Um, well, that's our show for today. Thank you to our producer, Danielle Hewitt, our production assistant, Alex Barish. You can email us at always at thewaves@slate.com or tweet at us at June Thomas, at Hannah Rosen, at Tennessee Whiskey Woman, spelled T-N Whiskey Woman. That's where you can find Nicole. For Nicole and June, I am Hannah, and the Waves will be back with you next week. <laughs>